So we're going to look at today our basics of faith as believers. Now this isn't an exhaustive description of our faith, of course. Uh, That would be more than four weeks if we looked at an exhaustive account. But we're focusing on our understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason we are teaching this now is twofold. First, it's the most important thing we can talk about. We can't top that. Second, we're in a season where our church council is discerning our future, whether we want to stay in the denomination or not. And that's an important thing to do right now is to look at these basics of our faith. It's most important that you understand those core beliefs that are not going to change here at Anderson Hills. My faith foundation started with my Catholic grandmother, Mary. She was a West Sider. She was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. She modeled that for me in a very profound way. She cheered for me to become a Catholic priest. Most of my early years were influenced by her. When I became a sophomore in high school, I was introduced to United Methodist Church through my girlfriend's family. I began attending Rising Sun United Methodist Church over in Indiana. When I was a freshman in college, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, she was the hostess this morning with the mostess, smoking hot wife there, she brought me to this church. In the sanctuary of this church, I experienced my call into ministry. The church supported me in the beginning of that call as I explored ordained ministry in the United Methodist Church. I've been a United Methodist for over 35 years. There are two sides of the United Methodist coin. First is the institutional. 12 million United Methodist Christians globally. Around 6 million here in the United States. It's a massive organization with an amazing capacity to be used by God to build the kingdom of God. It's also a very complex machine that has uh, the political structure modeled after our U.S. government, which means, well, you be the judge of that. Our denomination, sadly, has been in a long-term decline since we were founded in 1968. We've literally gotten smaller and smaller each year. The problem really didn't accelerate until the past several years. In 2014, our denominational uh, leading economic advisor said, we must correct this problem by 2030, or else the United Methodist Church won't be able to recover because the overhead costs are so high. Sadly, our decline has only gotten worse since then, and then COVID happened and increased the decline even more as churches are being closed. Long story short, The United Methodist Church is not a sustainable denomination. So we're discerning whether or not the UMC is the right place for Anderson Hills. And if not, what would that mean for our church? Our denominational discernment team will soon make a recommendation to all of you, the congregation, and our members will vote on that recommendation. And per the United Methodist rules, you must be a member if you want to vote. And if you're not a member and you want to become one, you can take our growth track class beginning September 11th 
at 9 a.m. Here's the thing. I can honestly say I have peace about the future, especially the future of this place, Anderson Hills. Since we just started this discernment process, we've heard from so many of you who say that you don't attend Anderson Hills just because it's a United Methodist Church. Most people tell us they are here because of how God is utilizing this church to transform lives. Because it's a kind and welcoming place, it's also a challenging place. We challenge people to grow in their spiritual life, to experience the second half of the gospel where we have profound love for God and profound love for each other. And we also have life-changing missions here in Cincinnati and around the world. And let me tell you, denominational politics won't change those things, my friends. The other pastors and I have discussed this, and we all agree that we weren't called to ministry by the United Methodist Church. We were called to ministry by Jesus Christ, and he's not changing. And this church isn't here simply because it's a United Methodist Church. It's here because we've given our time, our talents, our gifts, our service, our witness, and God has blessed us and is doing great things through those things through you and through me. So like I said earlier, there are two sides of the coin. There's the institutional, but second and more important has to do with our beliefs, our shared beliefs together. And that's what I truly love about the United Methodist Church. I love the theology of the Methodist Church. We follow the teachings of some dude named John Wesley. I love reading Wesley. When I read Wesley's 52 standard sermons in seminary, sometimes I would be down on my knees crying in repentance from reading that that powerful theology. He was a pastor in the Church of England in the 1700s. And in this new message series, we are going to talk about that journey of faith that God invites every person to live out through these teachings. We're going to focus on those teachings of John Wesley And our timing is very intentional. In this time where many are worrying about the institution, we're going to focus on what we believe together. Because I think our beliefs are more infinitely more important. And so our discernment team is leading us through these institutional changes. But this series is going to give us a good foundation of sharing our shared beliefs together. I can assure you that our foundational beliefs as a church won't be changing. We're going to spend that time this month exploring that foundation. Today we're going to start beginning uh, of that faith journey. We're going to explore God's incredible love for us, especially through his grace and also through his forgiveness. So what did Wesley believe about God? How do we set sail and begin this journey of faith? Well, this is one of the really cool distinctions of our faith. Most Christians believe in original sin. This was really countercultural in Wesley's day. Wesley lived in a time called the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And the prevailing thought was that people are generally good. So it wasn't very popular to argue against that. But original sin is real. 
And here's why. Look at Romans 5.12. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone through everyone's sin. For everyone sinned. So because of the sin of Adam, we have the existence of sin within us. And you might say today, well, that's unfair, Pastor Jonathan. Why do I inherit original sin because of Adam's sin? Well, hang on. There's an interconnectedness of humanity that is actually a great thing. Here's why. Romans 5, 14b. It says, now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. Thus, Adam and Jesus have something in common. It says the difference between, that there's a difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. So then Adam and Jesus have something in common. They are representation, representatives of all of humanity. They just aren't regular people. And this is huge. Let's look at Romans 5, 15 through 16. It says, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. As a result of God's gracious gifts is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. What does this mean? Imagine if we had a long line of people who were interconnected by their arms and they were linked together. And on one side was this electric wire that transmits a shock from one person to the next person. And that electric current passes through. Zap, 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 zap. Remember a good, a good fence? I don't know if you, I was raised on a farm. We had those electric fences. You grabbed a hold of it, you'd get shocked. And don't try to go to the bathroom on it. No way. My brother tried to talk me into that, and I said, no way. But in this circuit... This means that Jesus chooses to step in and give us his grace. And he becomes like an electric circuit breaker that interrupts this deadly shock of original sin. But not only that, my friends, he sends a powerful charge through the wires, a charge of forgiveness, a charge of healing that's more powerful than Adam's sin. So now if you choose Jesus, you're removed out of that chain and you are made free. Indeed. So who is it referring to when he says are being made right with God? And how is it that this, we receive this free gift of grace in Jesus Christ? You see, as we look at humanity, it's clear that some people haven't received this gift and others have not. So how do we receive it? This is one of my favorite parts of John Wesley's theology. About 175 years before Wesley, there was a, there was a guy named John Calvin. He also believed in original sin. Calvin and Wesley agreed that people are totally dead in their sins until God reaches out to them. 
They also agreed there's, there's nothing a person can do to, to deserve God's grace. It's like a, a murderer on death row. He can't be freed just because he's nice to the guard or he agrees to stop murdering people. That doesn't pay the price for the murders that he's committed. So how is it that people are dead in their sins can realize their need for God? Wesley and Calvin agree that it must be God who initiates this relationship. But how does it work? Calvin believed in a thing called limited atonement, which means that Jesus died for a group of people called the elect. That means that God in his sovereign wisdom had chosen them to be saved from the foundation of the world. Now that may seem unfair, but you have to remember that all of us deserve death for our sins. So it's an act of grace if God chooses to save anyone. So God chose some to be saved and others to be sent to hell. I know that sounds rough, but it's one of those tensions in the Bible where good Bible-believing Christians disagree. Wesley rejected that belief. Instead, he believed that God's grace, which is God's undeserved, unmerited love for everyone, is not just for the elect. And Wesley believed this grace was drawing all people into relationship with God. John writes about this in the Gospel of John 1.9. He says, the one who is the true light gives light to everyone. Everyone was coming into the world. Everyone. This is what we believe together, my friends. That God is drawing everyone into relationship. And God's grace shines light for people to come to him to be saved and to be healed. And this happens through God's grace. We call this prevenient grace. Let me illustrate this. In fall 1996, Kimberly and I were married for four years. At the time, I was a student pastor of a tiny United Methodist church just north of Mount Orb in Greenbush, Ohio, just east of here. Kimberly was a teacher at Sherwood Elementary. I was also attending Asbury Seminary at the time. One evening, we went out to Chi-Chi's. Do you remember when Chi-Chi's used to be on Beachmont Avenue? I love their salsa. I still do. (laughs) I'll never forget the conversation at the table at Chi-Chi's that night. During dinner, my smoking hot wife brought up the subject of having a baby. That's when you gulp and your throat goes dry for Jonathan. You see, that's what you call a woman's clock beginning to tick. That evening, we decided to pull the goalie, as it said, meaning she would no longer take birth controls and we would let nature take its course. I began to make some changes. I wore boxer shorts. I began to eat better, more fruits and vegetables, less fat consumption. I began taking vitamins, becoming strong like bull. You see, our daughter Emily, we had her on our mind before we even knew her. We were preparing for her, building a nest, prepping, because we had no idea whether she was going to be a boy or a girl, but we loved her. Even before she was born, Kimberly and I were working for her benefit. Before her personality and all her uniqueness was being fabricated in my wife's womb, love was there. And the same goes for you. 
As far as God, how God thinks about you. God formed you. God knew you before you were born. Thinking about you, desiring relationship with you in that love. That deep abiding love for you. And that love, my friends, we believe is wooing you toward relationship with Almighty God. We believe that. That's provenient grace. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. You see, God is the initiator. And this grace is not contingent upon your works. It's given to everyone. It's free. And God never stops reaching out to you, my friends. Sometimes called the hound of heaven. God pursuing you. Provenient grace, however, is not enough to save you. You have to respond and say yes. Because God gives you that free will. And we believe that. But when you do say yes to God then God saves you. And God begins to begin to work in you, making you righteous like Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, for he has dressed me in clothing, with the clothing of salvation, and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding, or his bride with her jewels. This wasn't just a, a theoretical thing for John Wesley. He lived it out. The best way to understand John Wesley's belief is to understand John Wesley's story. And it's a powerful story about how God changed his life. John was born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley in 1703. And Samuel was a pastor in the Church of England. And he wasn't a particularly good pastor. He was very scholarly but not very practical he was also a very terrible manager of money. And Samuel and Susanna, they didn't have a model marriage. They disagreed on a lot of things. They even separated for some time. And like I said, Samuel was a poor manager of money, and his family was always poor. Now, Susanna gave birth, get this, to 19 children. 19. And many died at a young age. But she homeschooled all the kids, meeting with each one individually each week, and taught them about faith in God. She was very strict, but she was very effective, and she had a deep love for her kids. Samuel eventually went to debtor's prison, and the associate pastor at his church took over, and he wasn't a great pastor either. He commonly preached about paying debts, probably because Samuel owed him some money, <laughs> However, Susanna started teaching a Bible study to help the congregation survive and thrive. As a five-year-old boy, Wesley, a.k.a. Jackie, was saved from a terrible house fire by neighbors, standing on each other's shoulders, rescuing him just before the burning roof collapsed in his room. And Susanna declared that he was saved by God's grace, and, and she was right. At age 10, John went to boarding school where he lived a very disciplined life without parents around. Eventually, he went off to college and studied to become a pastor. And during this time, he grew in his faith, but he wasn't fully there. He had this very legalistic faith. He had tension 
which he would later describe as a faithful, uh, as the faith of a servant or a slave and not of a son. Wesley was a graduate with honors at Oxford University and a pastor in the Church of England, and he did many, many works, regularly visiting prisoners and, and going to the workhouses in Love, uh, London, not Loveland, and helping distribute food and clothing to the slum children and orphans. He studied the Bible diligently. He attended multiple Sunday church services as well as other services during the week. He generously gave of his offerings to the church. He prayed. He fasted. He, he lived a disciplined moral life. He even spent several years as a missionary to Native Americans right here in Georgia in the British colonies at that time. Yet he returned to England and he confessed in his journal. Listen to this. I who went to America to convert others, was never myself converted to God. So he knew what it was like to work for God, but he didn't know what it was like to have a loving, deep relationship with God. But God hadn't rescued John Wesley from the fire just to have him live as a dutiful servant. John began to realize that salvation isn't something that he has to earn. It's free. It's a free gift of God. Here's what happened. In 1738, he attended what is like a life group of sorts at a house in London on a street called Altersgate. Let's watch a quick video about what happened to John. It represents a watershed moment in his spiritual journey. Somebody who has some sense of who God is and what God means and what God's about in their head, but doesn't feel it or the spirit stirs in him in a way that a dynamic connection is made between what he believes about God in his head and now what he feels and experiences about God in his heart, in his emotions. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. It was the sense that God loved him, even him, that was life-changing. In early 1738, John Wesley was at a low point. Having just returned from his disappointing missionary efforts at the colony of Georgia in the New World, Wesley reluctantly attended a group meeting on the evening of May 24th on Aldersgate Street in London. As he heard a reading from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. He writes in his journal, I felt that God loved me. I experienced that God loved me. It was no longer something that was in my head, but it's something that I felt in my heart. Wesley was the son of a preacher and grew up in a devoutly religious home, but the dynamic connection to God made at Aldersgate was new to him. So his life was completely transformed, his heart glowing because he felt the love of God penetrate his heart. He would grow in his understanding of himself as God's child, not just God's worker. He'd grow in his understanding about how we are saved through faith in God, not by works. He'd grow in his ability to be more like Jesus, which means sinning less 
and obeying more in joyful obedience to God. God doesn't want you to live as a slave to sin anymore, my friends. God doesn't want dutiful servants, sons, daughters, hearts burning with light and life, permeated in grace as free children of God. There's no better identity than that. And there's nothing that you will ever accomplish that will begin to hold a candle to that fact that you are a child of God, saved by grace. This was Wesley's experience. What about you? What about you? Do you believe it for yourself, my friends? Maybe you haven't stepped across that line to receive Jesus Christ in that way. Or maybe you're living a faith of a a dutiful servant, not a son or a daughter. Well, my friends, the good news is, is that God is working in your life right now, wooing you into that kind of relationship.